Hey, Joss here. By now, it seems like they agreed upon opening that I just do some notes up front. In today's episode, we're tackling the magic fish by Trung Le Nguyen. And as always, we do go into spoilerific details about the comic, so if you want to go in fresh, I suggest you pause here and come back later. And if you do happen to endure our show, please leave a rating in your preferred podcast app. It'll help us with visibility. Cheers! Welcome to The Art of Comics. I am Joss. I'm an artist, streamer, comic creator. I'm also Commander Shepard, and this is my favorite store on the Citadel. Hi, I'm Paul Duffield. I'm a comic creator, currently sitting in a den of the kind you might make when you're 10, so that the audio sounds okay, I guess. Fairy tales have a way of highlighting really complex themes through a simplified lens. The Magic Fish is the result of applying and expanding upon the same format with real life. It encourages the reader to recognize, despite our differences, that we're all people with wants and needs. And just like in the stories, life can be both brutally unfair and mesmerizingly beautiful. That's lovely. Thank I think you. that's a better blurb than the back. <laughs> harsh. Well, I mean, only harsh if you consider yours bad. I think it was great. I'll read the one from the back and the reader can, uh, the listener can judge. <laughs> sure. Real life isn't a fairy tale. In fairy tales, the prince falls in love with the princess, but Tien has a different story to tell. His parents are refugees struggling to learn English, and he doesn't know how to come, to their, come out to them in Vietnamese. If he doesn't even have the right words, how can he ever know if his parents will accept him? The answer is in fairy tales, a language that Tien and his parents share. Tien learns from his favourite stories as he navigates the world with the help of his friends, family, and fairy tales. Yeah, yours is better. Sorry, whoever wrote that blurb. Well, I'm, I'm very flattered since I'm not even, you know, a native English speaking and I wrote that in five minutes, so. <laughs> well, isn't that, that's thematic because it's all about being kind of non-native in a way, isn't it? Yeah, I guess you're, you're right. Did you, I wanted to kick off a question right off the gate. Did you feel like this comic can quickly turn into a very elaborate, over-analytical conversation? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was actually, actually a little worried after I had read it because I, as you know, I had read this before. Mm -hmm. I read it last summer, I believe. And when I finished it uh, the first time, I, I really enjoyed it. And now I enjoyed it again. But I was also a little worried that we were going to drag it to to over analytical town and back and as two privileged white people that can quickly become a little yeah 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 so I, I was a little nervous yeah i mean true I, I my kind of gut reaction to this was that i loved it um that the reading experience wasn't perfect but my emotional experience was really kind of immediate and deep all the way through so i think we can you know we can we can dig into the the technical side of things all we want I think there's a difference between technical execution and sort of thematic resonance or suitability of content, you know, all, all those kind of things, different questions, even though they kind of come together. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think with stories like this, I'm just overly aware of how different my background is. And that is kind of ironic when you think about it, because the entire story here, at least to me, it kind of reads as we're all united through fairy tales. 
that's the beauty of this story to me is that fairy tales are such a universal experience. So no matter your background, beliefs, gender, most of us can connect through fairy tales. And yet, because of the creator, Trung Le Nguyen, and their background versus my incredibly different background, I, I get very worried that I'll accidentally criticize something that isn't relevant or that makes me look like a fucking dum-dum. Yeah, I, I think this this universal language of fairy tales and, and storytelling is, is what really drew me to the story. And I... I admit fully up front, I am an absolute sucker for stories about storytelling. They just get me in a way that no other kind of stories do. My favorite movie, full stop, is Millennium Actress, because it's got that quality to it, where it's about kind of universal stories and the way that stories weave in with our lives. And because this has got that quality, it just hit me in the feels straight away <laughs> and didn't let up. So yeah, I think I'm going to do a lot of gushing about this, despite the fact that there's there's plenty that I want to like dig into uh, analytically as well. Uh, I think we should just throw caution to the wind and, and go ahead. The themes of the story really resonate with me, but I remember you saying before we picked this up that you were very eager to see if Trung's style translates well to comics mm, because yeah. his illustrations are just out of this world, like so beautiful. I think he strikes a really beautiful balance of stylized versus really complex because sometimes his characters are really, really, really simplified in a super charming way. And then in other panels, it's like you can see every single strain of hair having been inked by hand, which just blows my mind because there's so much beautifully rendered hair in this comic and in his artwork in general. Oh, there really is. I don't know if you noticed, but there's a note at the beginning that says the first hundred pages were done by hand in ink, and then he switched to a Cintiq tablet. I wonder if he just drove himself insane. <laughs> I can only imagine, because it's so beautiful, and it must be so time-consuming. But to that end, I think for me, something is a little lost between the art and the story. Does that make sense? Do you feel the same or do you have a completely different take on this? I'm not sure. I think that he handles the art quite deftly. But the reason why I'd say that is I've always felt that his art was heavily influenced by absolute classic golden era illustrators like Arthur Rackham, Edmund Dulac, who have that kind of really beautiful, uh, Aubrey Beardsley as well, specifically, I would I would point to as, a, as an influence for Trung. And I know we've had a conversation on Twitter about that where he's sort of admitted as much. And they are quintessential fairy tale illustrators. They did all of the, the kind of Grimm's fairy tales, uh, The Little Mermaid, the ones that we're most familiar with and the ones that deeply influenced this book as well. And I feel like he moves in and out of that style in the comic as he shifts from real life to fairy tale to flashback or as he change as he changes emphasis on the moment and i resonated with that a lot but i don't know whether that's just because i have such a, a love for that kind of illustration so i guess i was sort of primed to like it <laughs> oh yeah I, but remember when last episode we talked about laura dean keeps breaking up with me and I told you I was a little sad that we brought very similar impressions to the table because I was so ready for you to like woo me and make me turn completely around. But that's kind of what I'm hoping for this time. Not to say that now I paint it as I'm very negative to this, which I am absolutely not. I think it's a <laughs> masterpiece. But I'm kind of hoping that you'll be able to highlight something that I maybe feel like I missed in a way. Okay, yeah. And I'd be really interested to see if 
anything that you've got to say on it sort of changes my perspective as well because it certainly it was interesting it wasn't it wasn't a smooth read in fact more than Laura Dean keeps breaking up with me I stopped reread sections got lost a couple of times had to go back at one point and reread so it's worth stopping here for, for people who haven't read this before what this book does really beautifully is it mixes together three distinct story strands it begins with narration framing the mother as the main character which is a uh, was an interesting choice did this confuse you this confused me it did yes um and we return to the to the mother as a narrative central point later it's a generational story so in that respect i feel like it kind of worked but it did it did throw me a little bit as did a, a number of other things here yeah i i want to shoot in that i don't think the confusion is necessarily the fault of the author i think it's just that i went in expecting the boy to be the main narrator and the sole narrator and not for it to be a generational thing like you say so yeah. it's not necessarily to the fault of the book or anything. It's just that it, it did confuse me. Yeah, absolutely. And it does, it, it definitely shifts central characters several times. It, you know, it, it shifts perspective. And I guess that's that's appropriate thematically because it's shifting voices too. And it's shifting around this central theme of the fairy tale. So to, to sort of sum up, we've got these three strands. We've got central character, possibly central character Qian, his mother and the fairy tales that they're telling each other and um, each of them has a different color the fairy tale panels are blue the mother's story is all in yellow and Tian's present is all in red I loved that use of color that cleared up a lot of confusion that might have otherwise existed in the storytelling and made particular moments where all three stories were woven together in the same page way more lyrical and clear than they could have otherwise be there was a particular kind of sequence i picked out that i think worked really beautifully in that regard yeah the first time when we sort of shift perspective backwards and forwards was page 28 and 29 and that was the first time the story really hit me deeply emotionally i absolutely loved that moment because we suddenly got to see how as tien is telling the story his mother is reacting with memories that get inserted into the middle of the fairy tale that resonate with what's happening in the fairy tale. And that was just such a beautiful, beautiful storytelling moment for me. And it, a great use of color there that, that really underscores that, that transition. Yeah, I 100% I agree. And I, I definitely argue that without the color, this comic would be harder to read. And not oh, necessarily yeah. due to the fault of the art itself, because as I keep saying, it's very beautiful. <laughs> but <laughs> just the fact that it's also... Actually, this weaves into something I wanted to ask you. Did you pick up on the fact that you have Chen and then you have Julian and Claire, which are the main character's two friends, two closest friends, and Chen has a crush on Julian? Mm -hmm. And did you notice that all the male love interests in the comic kind of resembles Julian? Yes, yes, in the fairy tales as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that was really nice. And one of the things I stumbled on, but I appreciated when I came back, was the first fairy tale has a very, very classic feel. I wasn't familiar with it. I think it's actually made up for the book. No, it actually isn't. I think it's a bastardization of one in the back. Ah. It's very generously explained a lot of stuff. Okay, I didn't read that because the, the, the stuff at the back. I did research. Damn. Okay, right. <laughs> interesting. Well, if, you, if you've if you read it and I've not, that's an interesting uh, different perspective on it again. But yeah, there, there, was, a, there was the first moment that, that threw me was that fairy tale felt classic and quite old. Mm-hmm. 
up until the point where the prince character refers to another character as they and yeah. the sudden use of a really modern pronoun made me go whoa okay wow maybe i'm reading this wrong and at that point i popped back to the beginning and i noticed that tien's mum asks him not to change the words as if he habitually does change the words and the language as he reads the story reads the fairy tales mm -hmm. and so i think this is this is very much a case of a an unusual unreliable narrator is in like a literal unreliable reader who is embellishing the fairy tales as he tells them so i think that idea of all of the love interests looking exactly like his love interest is yeah it's bang on the money it's very endearing too so this is where i was very glad that there was a lot of information by the end of the book because uh, now that i know that you didn't read it my <laughs> that, that removes some <laughs> questions for me because i wanted to ask you do you think that a story should hold itself well enough without needing all the context in the back but i mean now that i know that you haven't read it that question kind of falls away but i will say that i was personally appreciative of it because it is educational in many ways because of course it brings a lot of cultural stuff that i am unfamiliar with but one thing i'm glad it actually stated is that this is supposed to be set in the 90s because I really struggled finding when is this supposed to be? And I mean, if you're a history buff, I'm sure it's very easy, but I'm sadly completely fucking stupid with history. So I'm not good at doing the math between when big events were and where we can currently, by thinking of the age of the characters, be in the timeline. Because that also makes me think that even the representation of the real life feels like a fairy tale. Because... I think it's pretty safe to say that back in the 90s, we did not use they, them on a larger scale. Yeah, we certainly didn't. That's that's for sure. There are some characters in the story where I'm thinking, yeah, they feel very true, sadly, to their time. Like the teacher and the priest kind of oh, talking yeah. about Tian's sexuality, like, you know, sin. A disease, whatever, you know, how homosexuality was addressed in the 90s. Yeah. But then you have stuff like Tian being so aware that he's changing pronouns of characters in a fairy tale and that that makes it a fairy tale in itself does that make sense it does yeah and i actually thought that the, the modern stuff had this interesting it didn't pull any punches specifically because of those characters you mentioned and because and of the real deeply emotional struggle that the main character has coming out but at the same time when it came to the younger characters his friends specifically and then the school the wider school environment they appeared to be very comfortable within there was something really gentle and warm about that to the point where it almost I didn't realize it was meant to be set in the 90s. I thought there was just a lot of 90s revival fashion in it. <laughs> Y2K! <laughs> yeah. It almost felt like a kind of um, an imaginary future with elements of the present and elements of the past in it. Mm. And I don't know how much of that kind of slightly dreamlike atmosphere was deliberate and how much of it was just um, what happened as the story developed. But yeah, I definitely, I got the same thing as you. I didn't even attempt to place it in a specific time period in my head. I just sort of was along for the ride, I guess. I think I have a tendency to desperately do that when I get confused about language used in a setting, people's sexualities and stuff, because, I mean, as a gay person myself, it is very hard to now, you know, reflect upon the fact that even today, times aren't great, but they've definitely been way worse. And then to realize that this story is set in a time where, you know, using the F word was carte blanche as a slur. And then you have this very, very sweet, soft, gentle story of a boy coming out and that seemingly going relatively well. I mean, the priest and the teacher can suck a fart, but... <laughs> 
Yeah, no pushback from friends. Yeah, the friends are really supportive. Both the boy and the girl, very supportive. And the mother has such a motherly approach to it all. And then I could see my mom doing this to me, be like, I'm a little awkward about this topic because it's unfamiliar to me, but I just want you to know that I love you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's nice, I guess, to see a positive coming out experience in that regard. I wondered how much of this is sort of either autobiographical or semi-autobiographical. Was, was there any instance of that being revealed in, in the stuff at the back? So this is where I really hesitate to go all Tumblr detective on this, because <laughs> I do in no way claim to know Trungles personally. I really do not. Uh, I just have the pleasure of following him on the sidelines. But from what I've seen them expose publicly and from what is written in the text in the back, it really feels like it's loosely based on his own life, basically, how uh, him and his family used fairy tales and stories to mend bridges of language barriers, etc. And getting to, I guess, know one another and to communicate together. So that part really felt like it was based on his own life and his childhood. But again, this is where I feel it's very dangerous for me to say anything for certain because I don't know Trungles and I will never claim that I do. And again, this is where our backgrounds are so different that I don't want to step in any salads. Yeah, and it's yeah, yeah, it's it's a very it's not like you can just pop on and ask, "Hey, is the coming out story in your in your book perfectly based on your exact story with your own mother?" That's that's an incredibly invasive question. Hey, remember back in like, I don't know, 2010 when we did an art trade on Tumblr before you blew the fuck up and I remained the nobody? Do you do you remember that? Yeah, I I'm back. I'm back from the ashes and I I have some very brooding questions about your beautiful comic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean in in absence of that it, at the very least i can say it felt deeply personal in a way that not every single comic does to the point where i'm you know it left me with that question is is it at least semi-autobiographical but i think that that one of the things that really struck a chord with me emotionally was that the level of anxiety that the character felt about coming out was embedded so beautifully in in the storytelling and in the kind of trepidation reflected in the the themes of, of the fairy tale because as, as that storyline really ramps up we're getting a very very true to life well not true to life true to the old version retelling of of the little mermaid at the same time mm. that only varies when the mermaid actually comes on land and that kind of sense of being uncomfortable in yourself of having to live a life that you desperately want that still hurts you it, as a fairy tale it, it's sort of a perfect pick but i absolutely i fully admit i absolutely teared up and fully kind of single tear down a cheek kind of crying <laughs> you know what i mean oh. At that last sequence, when his mother told him it was okay, understand through the medium of the fairy tale, I got it at the same time as the character got it. And I think that's the most beautiful kind of storytelling. It doesn't wrench you out of the story to tell you something. It lets you realize in the same manner that the character in the story is realizing something. And that and that's when you feel that kind of like emotional proximity to a character. And that just totally got me. I thought it was a beautiful ending. Where I felt like Laura Dean last week tied itself up in a pretty bow that just told me everything was okay. This tied itself in a pretty bow that made me feel like everything was okay. That's a huge difference. And these are two stories that I have equally uh, little 
personal gateway into if that makes sense just just, i've never struggled with my identity i've never struggled with my sexuality um but this one really really deeply pulled me in in, in, into tian's perspective yeah yeah i i agree the ending really landed with me as well and I think that's when I finally felt it was all a very fluent reading because you you mentioned that they're using the the Little Mermaid in the end, and I don't know if it is because of my familiarity with this fairy tale versus the very first one. I obviously know Cinderella, which is the second one they use, but the very first one is a fairy tale I've never been introduced to personally. So. In the beginning of the comic, I struggled a little more gaining a foothold of the both the references and how it correlated between the real-life character, quote-unquote, and the fairy tale characters. It wasn't as clear to me, even though I still think the, the blend between the mother's flashback and the fairy tale and stuff like that is so amazingly handled. It's very delicately handled, because it could have quickly felt sensationalized or, I guess, almost in a way, a little grotesque. But it, it nowhere near even skirts those boundaries in this comic. But since I personally don't know this fairy tale, I also struggled with investment until a certain point where I started to grasp upon the familiarities of Cinderella and then, in the end, The Little Mermaid. And by the time they got to The Little Mermaid, I was... I was there because then it felt really like to me that both real world and fairy tale world collided in this beautiful mix where they told one another on parallel tracks without me getting pulled out. Yeah. And I wonder how deliberate that is because it's interesting that you should have found it hardest to relate to at that moment when the fairy tale wasn't really serving its purpose. Like if we're using the fairy tale here as a universal language, but you're not familiar with the fairy tale, it ceases to be a universal language. It's just another story that you're reading for the first time. So I I suspect it was probably deliberate to have the most obscure fairy tale first because I'd certainly never heard of that one before either and it was you know it was a novel read for me too and then the Cinderella one in in the middle is more familiar but it's a Vietnamese version of Cinderella or it's a Vietnamese Cinderella story yeah and then by the time we're telling the Cinderella tale it's sort of modern and recognizable enough and the twist on it is clearly like some fun that Chen's having reading it out because once she gets on land she's sort of in a modern setting and they're all in leotards and and she's she's dancing for a production and so on which i i really enjoyed i I think weirdly enough i enjoyed reading the the fairy tale at the beginning more because it was fresh to me whereas i sort of knew what was going to happen with the others so sort of my mind had already skipped ahead a little bit and you said the sort of the art was a bit of a barrier for you sometimes were there particular instances of that you could remember I think beyond the art, it's the paneling for me, because the paneling gets too rigid for my taste, and this is so highly subjective, so I'm I'm not sitting here saying that it's wrong or anything, because it definitely isn't, but I am a sucker for very lively breaking of the page panels, and when it's just square, 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 I feel weirdly constricted by it. But funnily enough, so I actually wrote down, there's a, a page 110 and 111, when... The princess character of the very first fairy tale is standing on the beach. She is covered in this magic blanket, hiding from the prince, trying to obscure her identity. And then there's a heavy gust of wind and the blanket is blown away and she's revealed as, you know, the the princess that he's so madly in love with. 
And this... Yeah, that one stuck in my mind. Yeah, this one stood out so much because it was very much a break from the typical very rigid panel. You could argue it's still relatively straightforward, but especially the, the wind being illustrated blowing through most of the panels. And... One side of me was like, oh, yes, some some, some breaking up, this is doing my eyes good. But also, it, I felt it was weirdly chaotic and a little messy because it seems maybe like a format that maybe the author slash artist isn't that comfortable with. And that is just me drawing conclusions, obviously. I have no idea. But based on everything else, that's kind of what stood out to me. I think I did. And, and again, we can add a little ping. This is wrong later. But um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure this is Trung's first long form comic. I think you're correct. It's crazy. That's crazy. If that really is the case, then the fact that we're kind of like nitpicking the exact neatness of a of a really beautiful panel sequence that just is a little bit too chaotic it's a luxury detail <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> he's a fish to water in terms of using the medium in comparison to a lot of illustrators who try to transition for comic to comics yeah. and to my mind do you know like just a fundamentally poor job of understanding the medium this is sort of like it's a fundamentally wonderful job with a few shaky moments and maybe a, a slight over-reliance on rigidity. But then that, I guess that's a personal taste thing. Some people just love their nine panel grids. <laughs> and, uh, that's that's not me, and I know it's not you, but... I think it's just, there's something that just isn't quite landing for me. I can see, matter-of-factly, that it's gorgeous and delightful. There is just something within the execution that isn't grabbing my attention all the way through where it feels like a smooth flow because I love the story it's very emotional I can relate to several bits of it in a very different perspective there simply is something maybe it just is the paneling maybe it just is the rigidness of the paneling where at the end of the day that is not wrong it is just not my cup of joe yeah yeah it could very well be because it sounds like we've had a v interesting very similar reaction to it but the take home that we've got is just slightly different be really interesting to see if this crops up again in future comics that we talk about because i i know that there are a couple of my absolute faves that you may respond to in in this way because they are also relatively rigid in terms of panel layout so yeah i'm going to be fascinated to see what you think I'm starting to get nervous that I'm just going to bring stuff to the table that everyone's like, yeah, no, this girl needs to just stop talking about comics whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> just take your dank ass shitty opinions and get the fuck off this platform, please. <laughs> Again, we can't, we just can't remove ourselves from, from the reading experience. There are a couple of like little bits that I, I marked down that I wanted to mention. The first one is just that I absolutely adored the way that Trung stylizes the three brothers. Oh, in... it's so cute. <laughs> yeah. I just, I want little figurines of them or something. They're just so cute. One of them has absolute big Mario Plumber vibes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, I stopped myself whilst I was reading to note that down because uh, <laughs> it was such an immediate reaction. Is it wrong that I almost, I know the age gap would probably have been horrendous, but I kind of wanted the princess to go for one of the brothers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. They've, the, uh, all of the 
love interests because they all look like that one character they also look like your kind of quintessential bishy wonder boy shoujo kind of beautiful flowing blonde hair huge eyes and eyelashes <laughs> again feels like there's something personal going on there is that wrong well it's very easy to see the the shoujo roots in his inspiration which i utterly fucking adore i think that's wonderful yeah. i'm like more of that self-indulging nature please Oh yeah, there was there was one bit. I wanted to know how you felt about page two hundred and twenty. One moment. I mean, I mean, <laughs> I'm gay, so. <laughs> I wondered if that might strike a chord. For people who haven't read the book, he undermines the the classic Little Mermaid story by having her share a kiss with a female character who she then ends up going off with in the end instead of the quote-unquote prince character. But you're leaving out the biggest detail is that the female prince character is actually dressed like a male prince because they're performing a ballet play. Yes. There's some cross-dressing going on. I'm just like, humna, 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 catnip. Oh, I was also going through some pages and panels that really, like one moment where I thought probably one of the most successful panel layouts in the story was page 116 and 117, where it's playing with your regularized panels to create a kind of a montage moment, but really successful one. And then contrasting the pose of the character on the left with the pose of the character in the fairy tale on the right and i love that as a transition back into the fairy tale and the way that the top of the long vertical panels on the right are capped off like the waves Ooh, love that mm. i'm really glad you're bringing this up though because this actually leads right into a question i had for you mm -hmm. did you miss sound effects in this comic oh you know what this is going to be an interesting discussion i didn't notice they were gone but I'm not a great fan of sound effects. Interesting, because this is definitely when I thought... Because when you look it over once more, it's very obvious that on the previous page, the vase with the flowers is falling over and crushing to the ground. But on a quick read, that's not necessarily super obvious. And for me, it made me go, hmm, a sound effect here would make me immediately understand what was going on. But it also, you know, you're not dying from doing a second read but yeah it's fun that you bring up that exact page because there is another comic that we're going to talk about down the line where i'm probably going to have to do hey ho ding dong here because i actually don't remember the title but it's uh, one that we both have the step by bloody step right oh yeah there is no sound effects in that comic whatsoever and that actually was weirdly jarring to me it's very interesting to hear you say that you don't enjoy sound effects that much necessarily because I do, apparently. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. I definitely don't miss them when they're gone. And actually, funny enough, in my job as an art director, I'm quite frequently talking to editors about what we need to put in panels and so on. And a lot of the editors I talk to are really frightened of silence. They just don't want a panel to be bereft of a sound effect or bereft of a speech bubble of some kind. And I love quiet moments in comics. The way that I think about it, and... This isn't for everybody, but this is the way that I approach my own comics, is that I try and make my drawings as viscerally, as audible as possible, if that makes sense. So I think one of the problems here is that that vase, when it lands, doesn't look very smashy. I'd want the drawing itself to sound like the sound of smashing, and that's my kind of sound effect. And I only rely on sound effects when... I think the term is non-diegetic, when they're non-diegetic, as in they're not emanating from something you can see on the panel. So, mm. for example, if you've got 
bells tolling in a distance yeah, yeah, yeah. you absolutely need a sound effect in order to show that they're happening at all whereas if someone was striking a bell in the panel I might want that to just look so evocative of the sound of a bell striking that you don't need a sound effect to accompany it. And I don't know whether that's a sort of a vain hope that I'm putting into my artwork, but um, it's definitely my personal approach. I kind of agree with you. I just have never intellectually thought about it like that, but I think I tend to do something similar because of my animation background, where obviously in animation, sure, you, you tend to have sound effects, but you also want the volume of the character to no pun intended, speak volumes of their actions. <laughs> yeah. So I, since I am lucky enough, I guess, to, to have that background, depending on who you ask, I definitely try to have big movements, I guess, and big translations, like visual translations. But still, I'm a sucker for sound effects. And I think it is rooted in my love for manga, because sound effects are so beautifully incorporated in manga a lot of the time, even though me, as of course uh, an absolute fucking illiterate, don't read Japanese, they are often kept in Japanese and then just translated with little asterisks, which I think is very cute. And then they're sort of blending in with the art. And maybe that is because I can't read them, so they just look like very beautiful characters to me, or it is just with how Japanese is structured, so it is a very visual language, written language. Yeah, the strokes of the pen are just so much more apparent in a Japanese character than they are in an English character, which has been more or less, as far as I am I can tell, you know, like a typeset English character is so divorced from the stroke of a pen that you need to calligraphyize it in order to get that back out of it. I do struggle with, because I have the same thing, I really love sound effects in manga but when I draw them myself I find myself struggling with the forms of the Roman letters and it just always feels clumsy I, I, I can't make the letters look like the sound of the sound without making them also look weird or tacky or <laughs> lettering for me just increases my respect for actual letterers a tenfold because I firmly believe that the people whose job it is to do lettering in comics they are God's gift to comic artists because if they're really good, they're essential. You know, they, they are really necessary to, to tie it all together if you do rely on sound effects. So people who are actually really good at lettering, mm, chef's kiss. Mwah. Yeah, someone who can who can elevate a comic with their lettering is, is uh, both, I think, rare and also really special. Mm. I think um, in terms of this, yeah, I didn't, I didn't tweak that there weren't any sound effects, but it now really stands out now that you've said it. Were there any other sort of moments that stood out to you in this or, or that you bookmarked or anything? Mm, no, but that's when it really started to... I think now that I'm talking about it with you in hindsight, it's also starting to click why maybe I feel a little on the outside of this entire story. It's maybe because of sound effects, because the quiet that you love can make me a little uneasy almost because I'm missing missing the constant ambiance and I'm definitely outing myself as incredibly neurodivergent uh, here because I'm the kind of person who listen to music listen to a podcast and watch the stream at the same time because my brain just cannot fucking chill and this is how I fix my dopamine so if I don't have constant noise on I go a little batty which is you know it's its own fuckball of issues but I think weirdly that translates to comics for me that if it's too quote-unquote quiet I become too self-aware while reading it there's not enough distractions happening uh, for me yeah that's interesting I would sort of class this whole comic as being quite sort of self-aware because it's quite sort of meta in a way it's constantly commenting on itself and it's constantly sort of 
switching backwards and forwards in a way that makes you very aware of the fact that it's telling a story at you and that you you're reading a story Mm -hmm. as i said that's very much my kind of personal storytelling fetish right there i love it and whenever it pops up i i feel well at home but I can imagine that that might alienate some people as well. Yeah, I think it's very interesting to hear that you love it. And I don't want to say that I hate it because that's very crass and that is definitely also not how I feel about it. But it can have the effect of pulling me out, just as I imagine poor sound effect lettering can pull you out. And I think that um, the one thing I'd note about a lot of the stories that I really love in this mode, they're also not necessarily the most popular of stories. Um, They might be highly kind of quote-unquote critically regarded or something but like let's say Millennium Actress that Satoshi Kon movie that I mentioned it's very rarely mentioned if people talk about their favorite Satoshi Kon movie it's usually Paprika or Perfect Blue or Tokyo Godfathers and Millennium Actress gets a little overlooked but uh yeah I mean I'm gonna I'd imagine in future podcasts I'm gonna come back again to this sort of whole thing about stories about stories just because I, I kind of I instantly resonate with it. But it's really fascinating how we're kind of... This is the third time we've done this now. And each time we've had different perspectives. Sometimes they've lined up. Sometimes they haven't. It's amazing how much you take to a story. It's amazing how much like your life, your experiences, your tastes, your preconditions, your mood. Absolutely everything can influence how you sit down and read something and whether it, whether it resonates with you. And that can be really daunting as a creator. Yeah, for sure. But I think that also touched upon something that is so important to keep in mind, especially if you are an active media enjoyer, like I would very much say we are to give us an elevated title, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) is that if you didn't like something at one point in your life, it's also worth giving it a shot later, depending on who and where you were approaching said media. Because there's things that obviously I watched as a teenager that today I would be like, cut my life into pizza. This is my plastic fork. Like, this is absolutely (laughs) not for me anymore. And then there's stuff that I watched back then that I was way too inexperienced to perceive on a level it deserves to be perceived. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we should probably pick out a few comics that we've already talked about fake in that Mm. regard. But we should probably pick out a few more comics that that were absolutely formative when we were younger and, and see, talk as much about how we've changed as how the comic has changed or how we address the comic. Oh my um, god, I'm I'm desperately trying to think because here comes a very shameful confession. Despite loving comics and being very invested in them and making them, I came to comics quote unquote seriously quite late. I started actively picking up comics in my mid-twenties where I started going, I need to elevate my senses and broaden my horizon and actually start picking up something that isn't manga or not that I ever was a Marvel person, but those were, it was either manga or Marvel slash DC. And I was never in Marvel DC, so it was basically manga. And now that I'm thinking back on, <laughs> I was an avid webcomic reader in my teens. Same. <laughs> I'm thinking of some of them. I'm not going to name them because I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to like a good friend tell them to you after we're done recording. Uh, but okay. I'm not going to mention them on, on record because I'm not that bitch. But there were some things that I read that I felt made me very mature and cool as a teen. And now that I think back of it, and I've even gone back and looked at some of it because it still blessedly exists online. Let's just say that I would not pick that up today. <laughs> it's hard to explain, really, in, in an era where there are more webcomics than you could possibly ever read you know there's just so many on on platforms like tapas and webtoons you just can't digest them all 
like in my day where there were like three titles and you read them yeah. all because that's what you fucking had. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, it sounds like a sort of... <laughs> but it's true. I'm sure that the one that I'm... I'm positive that the one I'm going to bring to the table after we go quote-unquote offline, you're going to be, oh, I know this one. <laughs> yeah, almost certainly. You know, there, were really, there were plenty of them around, but the numbers that actually got big uh, the, the ones that sort of generated a large enough audience to really mean something were, were, you know, there was only a handful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, one thing that I just want to point out just to gush about something. In the, um, the Little Mermaid story on page mm-hmm. 204, where it's the witch, the witch fish, or sorry, witch mermaid. Oh, yes. With the silhouette of the hammerhead. Yeah, Is that it's what you're so dope of? because you've seen her previously with like wild, cool hair. And you're like, oh, that's a really interesting silhouette. And of course, me being a shark nerd, I immediately saw her tail was also shark adjacent. But then on the page that I mentioned, you just see her completely silhouetted and her hair makes her look like you said, like a hammerhead. I was like, oh, that's so dope. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I remember, I remember stopping on that and just going, "Ooh, yeah." There are quite a few moments like that that actually technically took me out of the reading experience because they were sort of done so well, which is an odd, <laughs> an odd thing to say. With the the aunt character, because the aunt character weaves herself into all of the fairy tales in some way. Did you not feel there was a little bit of great fairy from Zelda in page one hundred and six? Oh, because of the size diff? You know what I was thinking of? I was more thinking of Ponyo. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I can see that too. And in terms of like things, little details in this I love, one thing that I'm absolutely taking home, and in a way it was a kind of a sound effect, but it was like a sound effect for an emotion, which I've never seen before. The star? Yeah. Yeah. It's just moments of like, oh, fluttery love feelings kind of expressing themselves. I really love that. And since there are no other sound effects in a way, it really stood out. And at first it it took me a couple of repeats to pick it up that, oh, every time someone is having the dookie dookies, the star is popping up. And then when I picked up the pen, I was like, oh, I love that. Yeah, it's really neat. It made me really sort of feel what the characters are feeling as well. And, and that idea of, of visualizing an emotion outside of a panel, you know, you see it a lot in other comics, but they're borrowing pre-existing language from somewhere like, you know, the sweat drop or something like that, or the, the sort of veins on the forehead. <laughs> Those things become universal, so we recognize them. But I love the idea of a comic creating its own language in that respect, its own visual language that you come to recognize within the course of a single comic. I'd love to see more creators pick up on that. Maybe maybe Trung's invented something that's going to become some comics universal language at some point. That would be great. Oh, that would be so cool. But it also makes me wonder, I wish I could ask them directly, were you inspired to do this by someone else? Or did you just make this up like the genius you are? Good point. I've never seen it in a story. So yeah, Trung, if you're out there, tell us. (laughs) The only kind of like really major moment in the book that sort of like threw me in and had me seriously rereading a whole lot was when Chen's dad turns up for the first time. Same, because this is going to sound awful, but I thought it was just the two of them. Same. And I wondered whether that was a, an oversight or whether that was deliberate, because that the dad is very absent and off at work a lot of the time. It didn't introduce him specifically. So at that point, I went back and I was like, does he have a dad? Where's the dad? And scanned the whole book and then had to make the conclusion that it was the dad later when it was a bit more explicit. It's an interesting juxtaposition when you look at the very first fairy tale they use where the dad is absolutely awful in the story. And then there Mm. is no dad present for a while in the IRL section of the story. And then when he's introduced, he's actually, he seems like a very sweet guy. He's very little, so it's hard to really base 
much character on him, but from the very little tidbits we see, he seems like a good dad. And I think that threw me even more, because I was like, okay, so was the dad awful before, or no? Okay, so that's that's not the takeaway here. Yeah, pleasant but absent is the is the sort of take-home I got. Yeah. Do you think this would have been benefiting from being longer? Ooh, I'm not sure about that. I didn't feel like I was craving more at the end, but I didn't I certainly wasn't bored of it by any means. I think it could have done with a couple of sequences extended. There are a couple of hard cuts which I thought could just do with a little bit more of a transition or a little or a few more pages. But was that something that that you felt? Yeah, that's that's kind of why I'm asking because I I'm not sitting here saying oh yeah I want a hundred more pages, but also just saying it could have done with some more panels here and there. Suddenly, it's you know twenty more pages added to a comic. So yeah. I agree, but this is something I'm facing again and again and again reading comics, is that I just think I am so corrupted by my animation background that I am obsessing over the kind of ease-in, ease-out pace of storytelling, where, of course, in animation you use ease-in and ease-out on animating a character to make them flow believably in space. But Mm. I apply that to storytelling as well, where I'm a slut for ease-in and ease-out storytelling elements, and I'm ah. positive that a lot of people are just like, nah, fuck that shit, that's a waste of my time, it's too long, it's dragging on. And, and I can tell that in most comics, this is very absent. And I think that is just a format clash for me. Yeah, and I do really appreciate that kind of storytelling. I've never thought of it in that way, in terms of sort of like a blended transition. When you're doing an automatic transition and you pick from the different graphs, like you can have a steep graph, like an exponential graph, or you can have a straight graph. I'm now imagining how you could translate that into different story cuts (laughs) but yeah i I agree i i I like the kind of storytelling you're talking about and i'd gravitate towards it myself and again maybe this is because we both started out reading manga yeah there was there's one particular transition i think i marked it down somewhere that was just a bit hard and could have done with exactly that kind of easing in easing out um i think it was one moment when we go back into the fairy tale because some of those transitions are so delicately handled Mm -hmm. and some of them are just a bit kind of like but we're back in and i think those are the moments when even just two more panels could have helped this feels like it was written all in a all at once as well probably didn't see the light of day until it was completely drafted then edited then drawn then you know very much a kind of like a graphic novel comic as far as i can tell Mm. rather than a comic that was made in bits and then put together so in that case i can i can imagine those pacing issues are just really difficult to address in comics because you get this strange if you're writing like a novel the first draft of a novel you you write it could be the final draft I mean, I know it never is, and I know it always needs more work, but it's in exactly the same format as the final draft will be, whereas the first draft of a comic isn't even in the same format as the final draft of a comic, so you have to become more and more sure as you go, because the amount of effort required to rework or repace something gets exponentially higher as you get closer to the end of a comic. So if you don't catch these things at the first draft stage and then you're faced with sort of like a 300-page book where there's a couple of segments that aren't quite perfect, I think a lot of the time the temptation is just to leave them alone. Yeah. <laughs> to summarise the book, I love that it exists. Like, I just, I love that it's, there's so much that's come together here, both from the author's perspective, from their unique background, from their sexuality, from their sort of geography on top of the unique mix of 
influences. It's just a really lovely kind of blend. And whether it's for you personally or not, it's still, you know, like I'd fully recommend it to anyone. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think everyone would benefit from reading this story for many different reasons. If you're ultra white and straight, more so than ever, like this is definitely the story for you to see how different life can be and how differently it shapes you. But I, I think no matter your age and gender and background, this, this story is for you regardless. That reminds me, have you seen the fantastic little, it's probably a TikTok, I'm outing myself as a boomer here because I'm not on TikTok, but there's a TikTok of this lady, very mature lady, I, I don't want to guess her age, but she's, she's, she's up in her years and she's in the library and I don't remember the text verbatim, but it says something, there's like hovering text like there always is on these videos. Also explaining a TikTok is like so fucking fun, but anyway, uh, <laughs> there's this video with a hovering text that says like ah you're too old for comics and then she pulls out this specific comic like the magic fish by by trungles and she's just like flipping the bird to the viewer and then like skating off to read it (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's that's a very good image to end on screw you everyone who thinks comics aren't for adults if a, a very vintage lady can tell you to fuck off and she won't enjoy this comic then there's no excuse for you to not run and pick it up and support this amazing creator because more than anything i want to see more from him oh yeah i cannot wait for whatever follows this up that is assuming that chung is not now sick of comics for the rest of his life have you seen uh, so i follow him on tumblr and right now he's making these super cute travel journey comics he's doing a publicity tour for i believe the magic fish right now in europe and uh, yeah, he's tackling in incredibly charming format his journey th- through Europe. Someone's doing a publicity tour for a comic. Isn't that incredible? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, can you be more on brand? I think if I, I'm going to end it on anything is that I, I know there can be a lot of jealousy in, in the business, in the creative business in general. And not that, you know, that is a hallmark of my character to say that that isn't me, but I can't stress just how happy I am for for him doing this. Yeah, absolutely. And I know it's you know when you've when you've been in what effectively is a sort of a marginal medium. It's not been treated seriously. It's been ridiculed. You've put your all into something that has not paid out necessarily in the way that you hoped. And then to see somebody coming along and just acing it, mm. and then getting accolades and getting recognition and not being questioned in the same way. I can imagine that being galling. But I'm just so happy we're finally in that world at least for some of us and and that hopefully it will happen for more and more of us as time goes on yeah because of instead of it being a competition i see it as a door opener i think one of my favorite saying is lift each other up it's lonely on the top so in two weeks we'll be reading horror classic uh uzumaki by jinji ito so pick that up and give it a try but full warning it has some disturbing images in it What is it called? When you're doing like a launching journey? Um, uh, a publicity tour? Yes. Oh, I, I gotta say, um, I still haven't recovered from the fact that you dared say that Mass Effect isn't contemporary anymore. No, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, I guess we should probably talk about next week. Sorry, no. I'm getting it right this time. We should talk about next fortnight. You can't say Fortnite, then the kids start to think we're going to talk about the game. Yeah, kids, we're talking about the game Fortnite. Come and listen to our hip comic conversation. Hey, 
fault. I play Fortnite. I know you're a Fortnite player. I'm too old for that. No, you're not. Oh my god, do you want to play Fortnite with me, Paul? 